Hello and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. Canada is often portrayed as the liberal dream, at least in terms of immigration. Its citizens have a positive attitude to migrants and when everyone seemed to be shutting their doors, Canada opened theirs towards Syrian refugees. In this episode, I ask, what's so special about Canada? Daniel Hubert is Professor of Geography at the University of British Columbia and has written a report for the Migration Policy Institute called What is so special about Canada? Understanding the Resilience of Immigration and Multiculturalism. Daniel Newport has led large research projects on immigration and cultural diversity in Canada and he has, amongst many other things, participated in a variety of advisory positions in the Canadian government. I asked Daniel Hubert why he would describe Canada as a success case at all and what it is that has made it a success. Sure. I hope it's okay to uh, give a little bit of, of uh, preliminary information before I get to your question. And that is, I, I think it's useful for people to know how that report came about. There was a particular genesis of that report. Uh, I was approached by uh, the Transatlantic uh, Council on Migration, which is a, a group that meets regularly uh, to talk about uh, policy issues, uh, to produce the report. And uh, just a little bit more information about the, the Transatlantic Council. It's an invitation-only group that is mainly uh, people at quite high policy levels in countries either in North America or in Europe. Um, and the, the, the group really wants to uh, put forward um, highly productive migration policies in, in, in those countries. Uh, I've only been invited a couple of times to their meetings. Uh, they're, they're, they're very interesting. Um, but it was a really specific request to write a report on the Canadian success story. So uh, that's, that's where the whole thing started. It, it wasn't like I one day thought to myself, hey, I should write a report on the Canadian <laughs> success story, and, and, and there we go. Um, however, I think there are a number of elements about the Canadian uh, migration system that, that are quite successful. And so what I tried to do in that report was to create a narrative around um, uh, around a particular sort of uh, logic or a logical flow of policy. And that uh, begins with the idea that Canada, uh, unlike many other countries, uh, has always seen immigration as something that solves problems rather than something that creates problems. Uh, that's a long-standing historical um, uh, way that Canadians view immigration. Uh, the second thing is, is that um, especially in this uh, last, well, uh, hundred years or so, uh, the Canadian government has always adjusted immigration policy to be productive for, uh, for the country. And I think it's kind of interesting to think that in 2017 we have an important anniversary. Uh, back in 1967, so exactly 50 years ago, the Canadian government invented something called the points system, which was uh, the world's first uh, way that um, a government could could structure applications for immigration such that people would list their human capital characteristics and that would become the the the, the mechanism that 
that uh, decided who would be admitted into the country and who wouldn't. So that was the way that Canada executed that idea of immigration being beneficial to the country. Uh, and then in the last half century, what it's been doing is is tinkering with that policy and, you know, uh, uh, improving bits of it or, or changing bits of it uh, over time. Uh, the third thing that Canada's done throughout this period, and especially in the last half century, is to really give a consistent set of messages to the broader polity about uh, why immigration is happening, uh, what it's going to do, and why it's going to be uh, of some use to the country. And then finally, the other thing I, I really emphasize in the report is that uh, the Canadian government has found ways of bringing in uh, at first civil society and later the private sector into this vision of how immigration should function uh, and assigning uh, those two different uh, sectors roles, actual roles, uh, in the uh, either the selection or the integration system or both. So I think all those things together have made for uh, a process of immigration in Canada that's widely uh, appreciated publicly, and and I think that's the the kind of success story that I was really trying to emphasize in in the report. That uh, in Canada we have not seen the kind of populist parties uh, that have arisen uh, to challenge immigration policy, to uh, criticize the idea of immigration, and most regrettably to criticize immigrants themselves. Um, we just haven't seen that happening in Canada, apart from a few isolated cases of individuals who are. Uh, um, really off the off the beaten trail politically, but uh, but other than that, we've we, we've had a pretty uh, big political consensus on that issue. Hmm, so I wanted to I wanted to get back a little bit in, in a bit about the idea of the um, the national interest sort of and the point system. But just first, one of the things that you bring up at the start of the report is that it might be difficult to use Canada as a sort of best practice because its geographical location makes it quite unique in how it can actually um, deal with immigration. So, for example, one of the things that you say is uh, part of sort of public uh, acceptance or uh, even sort of enthusiasm for immigration is that immigration is perceived as controlled. Um, but from a sort of European or um, or, or, you know, even Australian perspective or anything like that, then it might seem like geographical. In fact, um, you know, you just can't. Uh, it's not just that it's one factor, but it's like the factor. Uh, so, is it even is it possible to actually learn from Canada in, from the perspective of of countries that have have this don't have this uh, sort of isolated uh, geographical location? Yeah. So. You know, it's it's a tricky tightrope to walk on this particular issue because, on the one hand, uh, I want to be uh, cognizant of the fact that geography plays a role in in uh, how things have have evolved in Canada. But on the other hand, I don't want to be a geographical determinist and say that everything is just geography. And uh, even though I'm a geographer, geographical determinism. Um, so. Uh, I'll try to walk that tightrope for the next minute or two, and you can tell me if you think it works. Um, 
there's, there's no question in my mind that uh, Canadians have not been tested uh, in the same way that Europeans and, and, as you say, Australians and Americans have been. Um, in, in those other countries, there are just uh, uh, continuing uh, crises that are happening uh, just outside their borders, or in the Australian case, coming in ships to the borders, um, that, that, that bring people there uh, uninvited in very large numbers uh and and we just haven't had that in canada we've had a, a number of, of smaller incidents we've had the odd boat show up from across the pacific ocean right now actually we're seeing uh as a result of the uh the new uh presidential regime in the united states uh we're seeing a number of of uh land-based border crossings through the snow but the numbers in canada are just tiny compared to the the, the numbers that are seen in other countries uh, i think so far the number of border crossings in the current issue that I was just mentioning is in the order of, of a number of hundreds, the, uh, not a number of thousands or indeed a, a, a number of tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands as we've seen in, in the European case. Mm -hmm. um, there is a concern in Canada, by the way, that those numbers are going to increase uh, as the snow melts uh, and it becomes easier to walk across the border, but still it won't be anywhere in the ballpark that we've seen in Europe. So uh, that just sort of corroborates the point that you've been asking about, is this all about geography? And and I would say, uh, yeah, geography plays a big role, but there's another, another thing. I think all of those uh, ingredients I spoke about five minutes ago, the idea of framing immigration as something to solve problems rather than to create problems, the idea of broadening uh, uh, the, the management of immigration into civil society and now uh, also into the private sector. Um, the, these things have been really successful uh, in, in the Canadian case, and maybe they are predicated on the idea of control, but they are things that I think can be replicated. Other, other countries can do more uh, on creating a messaging system that, that can be more effective with their populations. Other countries can do more, I think, uh, in terms of in involving broader swaths of their population, or well, creating just a, a, a broader set of stakeholders around the issue uh, to, uh, to, to make for a larger, uh, a, a, a larger group of people who, who really feels connected uh, to immigration and settlement policies. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't want to be triumphant in any way whatsoever <laughs> about what's happened in Canada, uh, but I do think that um, despite its geogra relative geographical isolation, it has come up with some, some ideas that, that do help on this respect. Yeah, um, well, that's encouraging. Um, so just to go back to, like, your to your first one of your first points so you mentioned that one of the reasons why Canada can be seen as a success story is um, because of the way that it's uh, framed and sort of conducted immigration policy in a way that's uh, benef beneficial for the country so the point system is sort of a way of uh, using immigration um, to to benefit the country to benefit the national interest um, I suppose some people are quite critical of would be quite critical of that way of viewing immigration as like a national interest question because it sort of removes the notion that uh, immigrants themselves might have some rights and interests in in moving um, and you you mentioned this yourself in the report as well that there might be a tension between um, the the way can it, uh, Canadians view immigration solely in economic terms um, 
and um, so between that and sort of more humanitarian concerns and you 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 say that um you know attitudes towards asylum seekers are more negative than towards sort of labor migration um so you know in terms of this being a success story do you see any worries that in fact by framing it um economically and also as a national interest uh, issue that it's harder to actually pursue policies that uh, are are there just to to um, promote migrant rights and perhaps not even just asylum seekers but you know low-skilled workers and um, and others that, that are just trying to sort of create a better life yeah, I, that is a that is a real uh, a real concern, and as you say, I, I do mention it in the report. Um, I guess you could look at it two ways. Uh, one way is um, there's a number of countries where um, the the messaging to the public has been uh, w- we need to take in refugees because because it is our national responsibility, uh, and and you can see that in like I say a number of countries around the world and. Um, you know, like it or not, that's not a message that resonates particularly well with the public. And what it, it tends to do is to give a huge amount of scope for populist movements to come in and say, well, we don't like that responsibility. And guess what? It is it is harming our country for the following reasons that they believe that, you know, that, that whether believed or real, uh, you can argue a long time about that. Um, or uh, in the Canadian case, what's happened is there's been an idea that, yeah, immigration can be really beneficial to the country economically, and we're going to adjust it um, so that it becomes that way. But at the same time, we're going to have some allocation for uh, humanitarian immigration. Now, my personal view is that allocation uh, could well be higher. Uh, in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, it's been in the order of between 10 and 15 percent. It's a little bit higher now because Canada had a particular program to bring in a large number of Syrian refugees. So in the last year, it was more like 20 percent. Um, and I would argue that that would be a much better uh, ratio. In fact, it could even be higher than that. But in Canada, we can have that conversation. We can have the conversation where we say, because we've established an immigration policy that's generally beneficial to the country, now we can ask the question, how many other people can we bring in? Now that we've got this infrastructure, this whole sort of integration system, how many extra people can we bring in on humanitarian grounds? Uh, and, and I think that's maybe a better way of putting it to a population than we should do this because it's the right thing to do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, related to that, it's interesting. It's it's hard to tell, I suppose. Um, but in relation to that, um, you also speak about, um, or you, you write about one of the um, successes being that in Canada there's not this conflation of immigration and security, which mm-hmm. um, which is quite a big topic in in Europe and in in, in Australia and the US, um, and um, uh, and a way to sort of create this sort of hostility, well, which arguably has created this hostility towards immigration. Um, but some people have argued that the latest Canadian, uh, so the program you mentioned of uh, accepting the Syrians or the program mm-hmm. of receiving Syrians, uh, which has been targeted towards specific groups like families, uh, for example, and specifically did not accept single males. Um, so people have argued that that is because of security concerns. And so I'm just interested in 
do you think that this conf- like the lack of conflation between security and immigration is actually sort of disappearing a bit or is it getting uh, is security sort of an increasing concern in refugee and immigration debate um yeah um well the first thing is the canadian uh program just just like a clarification almost yeah. like you could say a footnote is actually a, a number of single males have been uh, right okay into the country so it's not been like a complete prohibition it hasn't been you know like a a ban <laughs> no no <laughs> as we've sure seen, as we've seen in terms of what's <laughs> happened south of the border so, so on what basis have they um well often through private sponsorship right okay that's an, a, that's another thing that's kind of unique about the Canadian uh, the Canadian system, is that um, the government has, in a way, created a, a kind of contract with the population, which is, if you really want refugees to come to Canada, by all means, let's do that. But you then uh, have a, a role and a responsibility in that. So, we have government-sponsored refugees, but we also have privately sponsored refugees. And in terms of the the, the, the Syrian initiative. The government of Canada um, uh, made a commitment to bring in 25,000 government-sponsored refugees and whatever number the public wants to come up with. Mm. And it's quite likely the public number number will exceed the... Uh, the sorry, the private number will exceed the public number. I, my, my guess is by the end of the day when the dust settles, there'll be about sixty to 70,000 Syrians mm. that will be coming to Canada uh, and about 25,000 of them through um, public sponsorship. Uh, private. <laughs> oh, I'm getting mixed up. Please do write at this moment. But uh, about 25,000 of them through public sponsorship and the rest through private sponsorship. So that's, that's a, a, another way, really, of broadening the stakeholder group. Um, unlike other countries, Canada has this system where any five people can form a, uh, a coalition, uh, and as long as they're willing to put up the amount of money the Canadian government would put up for the first year of supporting a refugee, they can privately sponsor a refugee. Mm. Uh, and, and right now, that's extremely popular. In fact, I just gave a talk at a fundraising event two nights ago. Uh, uh, people are collecting all kinds of money to put uh, as many of these uh, private sponsorships in as possible. Um, now, that again, that doesn't get to your security questions. So let me get to that. Um, what what Canada did uh, in in its Syrian initiative was, uh, in in my opinion, uh, something that was both politically highly symbolic and uh, kind of effective, but at the same time, maybe not the best policy in the world, which was to do it super quickly. So they were going to bring in 25,000 people within, at first it was thought, two months, uh, and then later it was thought four months, and they actually did accomplish the goal of getting uh, that number in in four months. Uh, That was, as I say, politically very symbolic and important, and it really made a buzz for Canadian people to uh, really pay attention and and all of those kinds of things. But uh, in so doing, they had to make, I would say, some very blunt rules about what kind of people would be admitted and what kind of people wouldn't be admitted. If you're bringing in 25,000 people from a place in the world you have barely any contact with, barely under any understanding of, you end up doing stuff very bluntly. And so Canada shipped uh, somewhere around about 500 public officials 
uh, to the Middle East. Uh, they were spread out uh, across uh, Jordan and Lebanon at first, and later uh, including Turkey, uh, to create a, a, a vetting system um, for the folks that would be coming to Canada. So first, what Canada did was it had a partnership with the United Nations High Commission uh, for Refugees, as, as, as you know, um, and uh, the UNHCR was responsible to come up with uh, nominations uh, of people, uh, and they gave Canada a set of nominations with contact information, so Canada then sent text messages, basically, to many thousands of people um, just saying, hey, are you interested? Uh, well, <laughs> a little more formal than that, <laughs> but you get the point. Um, and then um, uh, people would then present themselves, those who were interested would then present themselves to uh, the Canadian system, uh, and then the Canadian system would would uh, take over and, and um, go through a, a process of, of decision-making. That process included, and I'm probably going to forget some actors here because it was really quite a, 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 a large group that went, as I said, over, over 400 officials. I think it was actually over 500 officials. But these included um, our immigration ministry, our borders uh, ministry, uh, our uh, RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police were there, uh, our um, intelligence agency people, uh, Canadian um, Security and Intelligence Service, CSIS, were, were there, our, our Department of Defense uh, was there, uh, and together there was this whole process of deciding which of these thousands of people uh, would get in which were, which would not so there were there were to the extent that it's possible there were criminality checks and security checks uh, on on that set of people and that included a set of face-to-face uh, -face interviews so it was a huge uh, operation that was uh, that was put together to bring in this 25,000 people in just a four-month period. Uh, I think the total cost of this was over half a billion dollars Canadian uh, to get to get that whole system working. Um, so it, it it it's not something one does on a whim. You know, it was a, it was actually a pretty big uh, a, a pretty big logistical process, but also a pretty big political process. Uh, now I've kind of lost the train of thought. So uh, tell me what it is I'm supposed to be. Uh, I'm supposed to be explaining. So, so, so you were saying that there wasn't necessarily like a ban on single yeah, males, that's right. but uh, sort of the security aspect, perhaps. Um, I don't know. Wasn't such a big part of it, or? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, um, and all. Yeah. Now, thank you for getting me back <laughs> on my train of thought. All of this allowed something that was extremely important. All of this allowed the Canadian government to tell the Canadian people that we've got security under control. You don't need to worry about security. And very interestingly, the press conference where that statement was made was attended by the chief of our uh, security system, the chief of the uh, of the RCMP and the chief of our border control agency. So all three of them chimed in in a coordinated way, all set up by our Minister of Public Safety, to tell Canadian people, you don't need to worry. We've got it under control. So I think that was a, a, an extremely important pub, a political message because until that moment, you saw lots of concern expressed, uh, particularly by people who just didn't like the idea of, of admitting lots of refugees in the first place. Um, you know, they were using security as a way to say, ha, 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 look, what a dumb thing they're doing. And all of that just stopped instantly. 
it was like a, a curtain was put on that particular issue. A curtain came down and that issue went away. I might just ask you another question because I'm just trying to sort of underst yeah. understand how... Because this narrative of, um, you know, there were no single males accepted has been quite... Um, has been quite strong in um, in Europe where I am, um, and is seen as you know look what they're doing in Canada to make sure they're being safe, they're not accepting any single um, males. So um, I don't know. Don't you think that? Well, that I know I know <laughs> several single male refugees that came from Syria yeah. through this process. Right, okay. It was it it, it was. Uh, it definitely was a shaping aspect of, of, of what they were doing over there, but it yeah. wasn't a determining aspect of what they were doing. Right. Over okay. There. So that you think that's just been kind of spin that way? It's not actually been yeah. the sort of that wasn't actually the purpose of the uh, uh, of the policy. Yeah. I mean, what what and and the other thing that is part of this narrative is um, a set of statements were made by Canadian officials that we are bringing in the most vulnerable people. Mm. And the most vulnerable pe vulnerable people are, for example, uh, uh, single parent families uh, uh, headed by a woman. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, families that have um, disabled—I don't know what the right word to use is. I know every word is is <laughs> contested around these issues, but uh, people with you know blind or or uh, hearing impaired or physically uh, disabled, etc. Uh, people also. Um, uh, there was a big emphasis to bring in people with uh, alternate sexual orientations, the, the, these sorts of things, because it was felt you bring in the most vulnerable. Now, generally speaking, we don't think of single uh, able-bodied males as the most vulnerable people in the world. Uh, you know, for better or for worse, that's, that's a group that, that isn't usually associated with that particular issue. Um, so that was another kind of a shaping issue that was, that was involved in that selection process. Yeah. And by the way, uh, this had huge consequences in the integration process. I mean, uh, here in Vancouver, we were getting in families with like eight, nine children, two of whom were disabled. We had to find like housing mm. for families that had two people in a wheelchair. Um, when you bring in the most vulnerable, you bring in a real set of challenges. Mm. Um, in, in terms of where people are going to find housing, how they're going to make their way in, in, in the country, and so on. So there's a there's a pretty big quid pro quo with that with that decision. Yeah. Um, just to move on a little bit, um, um, I wanted to ask uh, about the um, you mentioned in the very beginning about uh, populism and that Canada doesn't really have this uh, anti-immigration populist. Um, party mm -hmm. um, and and one thing that you mentioned is that there is a convergence on immigration poly um, uh, policy amongst the main political parties so there's not sort of much uh, disagreement there uh, but some people argue that in Europe um, there has been this convergence or there was this convergence uh, sort of um, uh, you know 10, um, 10 years ago and, and later uh, and earlier, um, but that that was actually one of the reasons why these parties could be successful because there's sort of a gap in the market. So when immigration became a bigger issue, there was just no party to turn to. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you should all, all the parties should sort of uh, go and uh, someone should should take up the take up the role and become anti-immigration, uh, you know, just for the sake of it. But um, I don't know if there's sort of that danger um, that you might see that uh, you know there might be a um, 
there might be a demand for for restrict more restrictive policies and uh, and there's sort of no way to turn well we we've got a moment of that just now Claire, yeah. actually we've we've uh, we are in the process of watching our conservative party choose a new leader uh, and uh, last count, I believe, 14 people are being uh, are, are uh, vying for that particular nomination, and two of them uh, of the 14 are uh, making uh, Canadian values uh, a center point uh, of their of their uh, platform. Right. Uh, one of them, especially, that's that's like her main issue, uh, and and uh, they're they're both sort of thinking there might be some spillover effect from the Trump uh, uh, political process and, and his electoral victory and that maybe they will uh, they will win on that front and they're both putting forward uh, ideas of well Trump calls it extreme vetting but uh, you know that they, they use somewhat different names for it uh, and uh, they're also speaking about values tests as, as we've seen in many other countries yeah. the Netherlands, for example have had this for many years uh, and it's very interesting to watch the public reaction to this um, and, and well, I'll, mention, I'll, I'll speak about it in two ways one way um, I think people are beginning to realize it's it's a bit of a posturing exercise the 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 woman who's most uh, um, uh, vocal about this particular issue uh, has has now uh, just as just this week actually explained the three questions she wants um, prospective immigrants uh, to Canada to answer, and they are all apparently speaking about so-called Canadian values. And the first question is, do you believe that men and women should be treated equally? The second question is. Um, do you think uh, violence uh, is justified uh, 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 when when you're angry at an issue? Uh, and the third question is, uh, do you believe that uh, you have a responsibility to become self-reliant once you become to Canada, and that you can't uh, you can't expect uh, the government to take care of you? Well. If those are so-called Canadian values, aren't they also like German values and Dutch values and Argentinian values and Brazilian values, et cetera, et cetera? It's it's just comical, actually, that that those would be the three core Canadian values that are be that that immigrants are being tested for when they're basically uh, values that are held by people all around the world. Uh, we have uh, um, gender equality, um, uh, nonviolent uh, approaches, and self-reliance. So anyway, there's 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 that, but there's also the point that just the 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 debate around it, you know, the idea that uh, there should be a values test for people before they immigrate to Canada and so forth. Um, I I just don't think it's going to win her that position. Uh, I think that uh, it's just not going to have the traction that she hopes it will have. So I doubt whether it will uh, it will move forward. That's really interesting because that that really sort of mirrors the debate in a lot of uh, um, European, European, like you mentioned, the Netherlands. I, uh, I'm not that familiar the details of that case, but in the Scandinavian uh, countries, that's a really prominent debate. And those yeah. b- those particular values as well. <laughs> you know, the exact yeah. Yeah. <laughs> apparently they're Danish values, apparently they're Dutch values, yeah, apparently yeah. they're Canadian values, etc. Yeah. yeah. No, precisely. Right. Um, well, uh, you know, thank you so much. And I was just, uh, perhaps to finish, if uh, you mentioned your recommendations uh, to, you know, sort of policy lessons, if you want, from Canada to other countries uh, at the very start. And maybe just to finish, if you would, if there's anything in particular that you think uh, that you haven't already mentioned um, 
that you really think that others could perhaps learn from the Canadian case? Well, no, I just would, would reiterate a couple of points. I, I'm not going to add, uh, add extra ones. I think the first thing is that it's helpful when governments have a, a particular vision that they can share with their population about immigration, um, and hopefully it's a positive one. Uh, and, and that, secondly, they should do what they say, they're go- the, you know, what, what that vision entails. I mean, if, if they think they can produce an immigration system that is beneficial for their country, they should make that happen. And, and you know, um, in Canada, that happens to be economic um, contributions. In other countries, benefits could be seen more broadly in other ways. I, I, I wouldn't want to... Uh, um, uh, expect that everybody uses the same logic that Canada does. Uh, and a third thing I think is just so important, which is involve society. Uh, don't just make this a policy that government does and uh, sort of uh, uh, executes all by itself, uh, because at the end of the day, if you've got few stakeholders involved, uh, you, you can have these sorts of vicious uh, vicious populist movements that come around. If, on the other hand, lots and lots of people are in some way implicated in the way immigration works, uh, that that will, I think, have less traction, which is the way we're seeing things in Canada. So I think those are the kinds of things that, that, that uh, countries can do regardless of whether they're next door to another country or with five oceans in between. Um, they, they just seem to me to be good logical things to, uh, uh, to do to uh, have a, a, a kind of a synchronization between what government is doing on the immigration front and public attitudes about what should be done on the immigration front. To find out more about Daniel Hubert and to read the report this podcast was based on, please visit our website talkimmigration.com where you can also listen to previous episodes. That was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening.